The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. guys. My name is Andrew Zellers, one of the elders here. Um, if you're here with us this morning, that means we all survived the, the snowpocalypse. Good job. I wasn't sure if we were going to make it, but somehow Portland survived. Crisis averted. When I was 20 years old, I was in uh, the Bay Area where I grew up. I spent my middle school and high school years there, and um, a good friend of mine, his name is Andrew as well, sat down with me in his living room along with another close friend, uh, that the three of us were, were really tight from years in youth group together. And uh, he said, hey man, I think I'm going to move up to Portland and go to Bible college, and I think you should come with me. And uh, at that time, I was kind of coasting through life. I was just kind of drifting along. Um, I had some really good, vibrant youth group years uh, but once high school ended, and I was uh, going to what I called big church, which is Sunday morning church, um, I was kind of coasting, and I spent my, my most weekends going to uh, other friends' schools in the area, universities, um, partying, doing whatever, um, just kind of getting by, going to community college, which was a breeze, super easy, barely had to try to get decent grades. And so when he said, let's go to Bible college, we've always talked about taking our faith more seriously, let's do it. I said, sure. My decision to go was about as flippant as the rest of my life, just kind of whatever. And so we drove up to Portland, and on the way up to Portland, and I know some of you have heard this story, but it's going somewhere, um, I, uh, I had just gotten a, a new used car, a 94 Honda Civic Del Sol. That's the car I drove. Now, if you know, you think about a Honda Civic, the Del Sol is the smaller version of a Honda Civic. It was red, it had like a T-top, it was awesome. And it had a lot of legroom, surprisingly, but I looked ridiculous getting in and out of the car. <laughs> Being the responsible 20-year-old man-child that I was, I didn't check to see when I started the drive if, I just assumed my mom would put the registration and insurance in the car. She didn't. And I didn't, as I should have. So when I got a speeding ticket about the top of California, so literally five hours north of the Bay Area, five hours south of here, um, I didn't just get a speeding ticket. I got a ticket for no proof of insurance and registration. So I get to Multnomah. I kind of just get letters in the mail every once in a while about that ticket, and I just responsibly ignore them. <laughs> I'm in a new environment at Multnomah. Um, I'm surrounded by many people who are trying to really take their faith seriously. And it brings up insecurities in my own heart and life as I realize, wow, I, I haven't done this. I haven't taken the spiritual discipline seriously. I haven't really tried to walk with Jesus. And so I felt insecure around these mature Christians, what I perceive to be mature. And so quickly... I fell into engaging in social interactions, uh, procrastinating so that I wouldn't have to do my homework or try very hard. And it didn't take long for me to be put on ac academic suspension, where if you get bad grades two semesters in a row, Multnomah will say, you know, you're spending a lot of money on these classes. Some of them you're not passing, and you're going to have to take again. And you probably don't want to keep spending money on classes that you're not going to take seriously. So we want you to take a semester off. My second major at Multnomah was uh, pastoral ministry under Professor Jay Held, whose friendship and love for me has had a really significant impact on my life. In one of my first classes ever with Jay, he said, some of you will never try your hardest at anything because you're too afraid to find out just how good or how bad you are at something. Checkmate. You got me. At that time in 2007, 2008, I think that Jay structured his program so that the entire first year for the pastoral ministry students kind of revolved around developing a healthy 
self-introspection and an understanding of how your past has shaped who you are today. We would read several books and hear dozens of lectures on the importance of understanding that ultimately who you are as a leader is what most shapes those that you lead. We learn that in leadership, it's less about what you're saying or the content and more about who you are as you lead others. It's that phrase, more is caught than taught, right? Shout out to all my parents or anybody who's been around children for a little bit of time. You know, more is caught than taught. It was clear to me that Jay was just as concerned with our commitment to daily Bible reading and prayer as he was with our commitment to growing in self-awareness and emotional health. All that to say, that first year at Multnomah for a guy like me was brutal. I had very little self-confidence. I felt insecure by other people's walks with Jesus, and so I became the overly sarcastic guy who was comfortable being known as a jerk. I was constantly shocked when other people would tell me how intimidating I came off as. Shocked. I thought I was self-aware, and then they'd, you know, man, you're really kind of intimidating. What? Kidding me. Is it the size? (laughs) My lack of responsibility with that speeding ticket led to my license being suspended for several months. Not to mention, I was beginning this journey towards understanding the value of knowing yourself and emotional health for the first time. The semester that I had to take off for the academic suspension that following year was the worst, best thing that ever happened to me. That first year of school was very hard, but the months that followed were harder. I felt isolated. I had to bike to Starbucks in the rain at 4.30 in the morning every time I left my house, going right past my own car that sat in front of the house. It was humiliating. I felt like such a failure and that my life was bound for mediocrity at best. I was depressed. That time forced me to take a good, long look in the mirror. It forced me to ask, why? Why am I here? How did I get to this spot? Why do I make decisions like that? Self-introspection and emotional awareness forced on me, were forced on me in many ways during that time. I had to evaluate myself. I couldn't ignore what was going on. They say that people change when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. And I hit that point. For me, that, la- that season was the beginning of moving towards understanding myself and asking those why kind of questions and then listening to what the Holy Spirit was showing me. There were many things that I was doing wrong at that time in my life, including failing to read my Bible regularly or pray. I was inconsistent at best when it came to the spiritual disciplines. But hear me, I don't actually think that that was my primary problem. My primary problem was my inability to honestly examine my own heart to find out what I was believing that led to the unhealthy patterns of behavior. Now, if I tried really hard, could I change? Yeah, maybe for a while. But I needed to give Jesus the freedom to search the depths of who I was so that I could understand why I felt paralyzed by fear that led to procrastination and shame. It was not enough to simply identify that I struggled with those things. I needed to take the difficult next step of asking why that was the case and then invite others to walk with me as Jesus began to bring healing and restoration to that part of me. Well, this morning, we get to begin a new series and we have a new clicker. Look at this. (laughs) Boom! Watch this. Oh, fancy. Oh, man. We've made it. Renewal. Today is a big day for us at CB. So we move into this new series called Renewal. The word renewal means to return to an activity or a way of being after an interruption. And we felt like it represented our heart for this next series. Here's why. If you've been attending CB for any time, any number of years, you know that it feels like we've been in a constant state of transition for some time now. And while it's been incredibly difficult and trying at times, 
here we are. A group of people committed to one another as we apprentice Jesus and grow in his likeness no matter what. When an organization or a church of any size enters a time of transition, it causes them to evaluate their modus operandi or their way of doing things. In the life of Central Bible Church over the past many years, it doesn't feel like we've entered one transition, but several, doesn't it? Which has forced us to take a good, long look in the mirror. As the leadership has thought about these changes and why they keep happening, we believe that the Holy Spirit is pushing us to do some deep heart-level examination. We feel it's no longer satisfactory to see the issues that we face or have faced as a problem to fix out there. Rather, we must recognize the reality that it can't be some external issue or person or group at all times that is leading us to this point in, our, in the life of Central Bible. It is an accumulation of decisions, ways of thinking and doing that has us where we are. And while we trust in God's kindness and goodness towards us, we recognize that often God's kindness towards us comes through seasons of difficult and often painful self-introspection. The elders of Central Bible believe of all the ways that we can grow as a church, the most meaningful way that we can serve you in this season is for us as the lead team to take seriously our own personal and emotional and spiritual health. We're seeking to do that both individually and then collectively as a team. Each of the elders sense a similar push towards individual and team health and believe that the Holy Spirit is uniting our hearts towards this end. And so we felt it wise and fruitful this morning to invite you to join us in this process as we move into this new season. It sort of feels like we're beginning to turn the proverbial corner, as it were, and we want you to join us on this journey towards individual and communal health. So here's a preview of what we've got in store for this series. The first three sermons will largely be focused on personal renewal. We'll be discussing things like healthy self-awareness and emotional health, which is what we're doing today, family of origin and the past, how we change solitude and sabbath the second half of the series will focus on community renewal specifically we'll take a look each week at a healthy marker of community we'll cover things like the importance of gathering together for table fellowship or eating together community and sabbath we'll look at trust and vulnerability conflict bitterness forgiveness affirmation and gifts and home communities and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> this is really cool stuff. We are really excited. One of the reasons we're excited is because over the last several months, we've begun experiencing some of the fruit of healthy self-introspection individually and collectively as a team. We can sense a bondedness forming on the team. We're growing in understanding how to better communicate and listen to each other. We're learning how to trust one another, and our discipleship to Jesus individually is becoming more holistic. And so as we begin down this path together this morning, I want to encourage you to remember to do a couple of things during this series. First, listen. We're not unaware of the fact that many, for many of you, when I say things like emotional health or family of origin, it can carry with it some pretty heavy baggage, good or bad. You may feel skeptical or unsure of why this is something we ought to spend time on as a body. We're, not, we're asking you to be good listeners and to honestly ask the Holy Spirit what he might be trying to show you, both individually and all of us together collectively. Listen to others as they're processing the stuff that we hear about and teach on in this series. Secondly, we want to encourage you to make charitable judgments. Whether it's of the leadership or of the series content or your fellow home community member or pew sitter, let's fight to be committed to one another as we move into what may be for some of us uncharted territory. Finally, I'll say this. In leadership, you cannot give to others what you don't currently have. You always lead out of who you are, not in spite of who you are. 
So as we begin teaching through this content, we want to honestly and humbly recognize that as Central, Bible, as Central Bible's leadership team, this is the first significant and intentional effort towards individual and team health at this church in decades. We do not think this is an exaggeration. For far too long, personal spiritual health has been overlooked because one of the greatest flaws in the American church today is believing that my doing for Jesus precedes my being with Jesus. The church in the West has done a poor job of separating herself from the cultural milieu of productivity and consumerism that she finds herself in. And because of this, it isn't uncommon for leaders and pastors in the Western church to adopt the belief that who I am comes second to what I do. So many leaders and pastors burn out. And it's not just because the work that they're doing or the people that they're serving are taxing and difficult. It's because they've sacrificed their own spiritual health at the altar of doing the work of ministry. We say things like, I'm just running hard for Jesus, which usually means we're burning the candle at both ends. And the crazy thing is, we applaud this kind of ragged workaholism and productivity because God must want us to be working this hard, right? This has got to stop. You may have heard the saying that what most business owners fail to see is that they need to stop working in the business and start working on the business. What that means is they need to step away from doing the work and they need to start evaluating why they're working that way, if it's actually working at all. They need to evaluate their ways of being that undergird and precede their doing. Leaders in churches, especially this one, have to do the same. And if we don't, all we stand to give you is a weak spiritual faith and a fragile emotional IQ because we can only give you what we already have. If all you have is an understanding of discipleship that says that my doing for Jesus is way more important than my being with Jesus, we will eventually grow weary and tired and we won't be the only one who pays for it. We will hurt those around us. It's impossible not to. And we don't want to do that to you and we don't want that for you. We want something far deeper and more beautiful. So please, hear me. I do not think that we have mastered this area of discipleship. We're on the journey. We've started down the path, and through this series on renewal, we want to humbly ask you to join us, to come with us. We believe that this last season at Central Bible has been very hard and very draining, and we believe that this next season at Central Bible will be very hard and very life-giving. Would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, we love you. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would help me to communicate in a way that's clear and helpful, that you would give us ears to listen, eyes to see, and that you would work deep down in our hearts, that we might come to, to know you in every part of who we are. We love you. Amen. Okay, deep breath. How are we doing? We're okay? Quick drink. So the journey that we're asking you to join us on is one towards self-awareness and emotional health. That's not to say that some of us aren't on that journey, but we aren't naive to the reality that this area of discipleship has largely been overlooked throughout the church in the West. We, along with many others, see no apparent distinction between emotional health and spiritual health. When we think about what spiritual health means, it necessarily includes emotional health. Throughout history, Christians have never understood them as separate topics until recently. And it's strange because we love to assess the spiritual disciplines of reading our Bible and praying and fasting, but we have literally almost no way of assessing our own emotional health. We think this is because the American church has adopted a platonic or a simplistic view of spirituality that is far too weak and not nearly holistic enough for today's Christian. This morning, I hope to begin making a biblical case for the good pursuit of self-awareness and thereby emotional health as we look into what it means to be spiritually healthy people. Now, I need to start by acknowledging that many of the ideas and the concepts that you'll hear today and throughout this series are not original to me. I did not come up with a lot of this stuff. 
As with most people who preach, you stand on the shoulders of brilliant minds, several other brilliant minds. Much of this can be attributed to the hard work of Peter Scazzaro, pastor and author out of Queens, New York, whose work on emotional health has been huge for us as a leadership team. The elders and staff are currently reading his book, Emotionally Healthy Leader. And I've read significant portions of another one of his books, Emotionally Healthy Church, and they have been super foundational for this series as we look forward to spiritual vitality. We cannot recommend his books on emotional health to you enough. Another person that's helped shape this first part of the series on personal renewal is philosopher and author Dallas Willard. Willard's work on spiritual formation is second to none in the last 50 years of Christian writing. And his book, Renovation of the Heart, has had a significant impact on me personally. I've read and reread more from these two authors in the last several weeks than I know what to do with, and you'll hear them quoted throughout this series because they're smarter than me and they can say what they say better than I can. By the way, these are just a couple of authors who are a part of dozens and dozens of other writers in the Christian faith, not to mention hundreds of pastors who have sensed the need for the church in the West to recapture this part of Christian spirituality. So all that to say, we're not embarking on a journey all by ourselves here at CB, but rather we feel we're joining the movement of what the Holy Spirit is doing throughout the American church in these last 15 years. So what is emotional health? What does it look like? In emotionally healthy churches, people take a deep, hard look inside their hearts, asking, what is going on that Jesus Christ is trying to change? They understand that a person's life is like an iceberg with the vast majority of who we are lying deep beneath the surface. They invite God to bring to their awareness and to transform those beneath the surface layers that hinder them from becoming more like Jesus Christ. Stay there for a second. Now, I suspect that if there were a blatantly clear chapter and verse in the Bible that used terms like health introspection, healthy self-introspection or emotional health, we'd probably consider it a spiritual discipline, no different than prayer or reading the word or fasting. The reality is that a significant part of growing spiritually is to be on a path towards understanding the self, or said another way, it's seeking to understand why I think, feel, and act the way that I do. It's not simply acknowledging that I exhibit certain behaviors, but seeking to ask the why questions. This is an assumed and integral part of our apprenticeship to Jesus, but it is often overlooked. And so here's what Christians throughout the centuries have said about understanding the self as it relates to God. St. Augustine, a Roman African theologian in AD 400, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self. Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Meister Eckert, German theologian in the 13th century, no one can know God who does not first know himself. St. Teresa of Avila, Catholic writer in the 1500s, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. John Calvin, Reformed French theologian in the 1500s, said, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But these are connected together by many ties. It is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. I'm going to try to pronounce this guy's name. Dag Hammerschrold. One of, uh, regarded by many as the greatest Secretary General of the United Nations to ever be. The longest journey of any person is the journey inward. What they're all saying is that knowing God and growing spiritually is intricately connected to understanding the self. The two cannot and should not be understood as distinct entities. You cannot truly know yourself until you know God, and you cannot know God until you know yourself. Because 
if God made us in his likeness and he created us with particular purpose, then we must pursue him and an understanding of who he is in order to understand who we are and how we ought to live and think and act. Conversely, if we are to have a meaningful relationship with Christ, we have to be on the journey towards healthy self-awareness and healthy introspection because God wants to transform us not just on the surface with mere external realities, but at the deepest levels of our being. And we will not allow him to do that work if we have no understanding of what lies deep within. Referring to answering some of the core questions about human existence. Why are we here? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Dallas Willard writes this. However, thoughtful people through the ages have tried to answer these questions And they have with one accord found, as already stated, that what matters most for how life goes and ought to go is what we are on the inside. Things good and bad will happen to us, of course. But what our life amounts to, at least for those who reach full age, is largely, if not entirely, a matter of what we become within. This within is the arena of spiritual formation and later transformation. And so it is what lies beneath, deep inside us, that Christ wants to come into those places and redeem, restore, and renew as we apprentice him and walk in his life. He is not simply after mere behavioral change. So where did we go wrong in the West? I think there's a couple of reasons that the church in the West has largely missed this part of discipleship. We've developed an unhealthy sense of comfort. When you look back at the spreading of Christianity throughout the centuries, it is not uncommon that once a region or a country has become predominantly Christian, that over time, that area will begin to experience what we call mission drift. Mission drift happens when an organization begins to slowly move away from its original purpose or its reason for existing. It tends to happen when the people of an organization either knowingly choose to move away from their roots or unknowingly because they grow an unhealthy amount of comfort and become static. I think part of why we've lost self-introspection and emotional health as a natural component to discipleship is because like many other Christians in history, as Christianity became the norm in America, Over time, the church has begun to drift away from her original purpose and vitality because we've grown static and comfortable. Now, that's beginning to change, isn't it? As the church begins to shrink in America and we become more and more a post-Christian nation, things are changing. And we're beginning to see a resurgence of true, vibrant spiritual health and discipleship in the church. I think part of the reason this resurgence is taking place is because of what Scazzaro writes when he says... Sometimes a church division or crisis will drive a congregation's leadership to corporately look inside their hearts in a newer and deeper way. Secondly, we find ourselves in a time and a place in history that does not know the value or the meaning of silence and solitude. As advances in technology have skyrocketed in the last 25 years, so have our levels of distraction. We are quite literally more distracted, busier. We face more demands and have more responsibilities to uphold than literally any other generation throughout human history. How do you apply and integrate things that you've learned in school or in the home or in the church when you can't be alone for five seconds? without checking the news or looking at your phone or getting a call or a text. The reality that the church in the West is beginning to wake up to is that most American Christians exhibit virtually no distinct behavior from the secular society as it pertains to entertainment and solitude. We watch shows, we read blogs, we play video games, we experience massive FOMO, which is an acronym for fear of missing out. We're addicted to our phones and our laptops, and our devices. And all of this leads to little, if any, real self-reflection and growth in self-awareness and emotional health because we don't have any stinking time to do it. To truly practice this, this area of discipleship, 
to truly practice self-awareness and spiritual health, it would be the very antithesis of our distracted and productivity-crazed culture. One of my favorite professors at Multnomah was a woman named Damani Pothan. Dr. Pothan is probably, and I really mean this, the fiercest woman of God I have ever met. She was just ferociously faithful to Jesus. We would all stand together at the beginning of each class to pray. And if you had any food in your hands or a drink or gum in your mouth, you were going to hear from her. You don't do that when we pray. I have this vivid memory of her offering this thought to us one day before we prayed. She said, most of you are terrified at the thought of being by yourself with no distractions, just you in a room with yourself and God. The truth of that statement stays with me still. So what are some signs of emotionally unhealthy people or emotionally unhealthy Christians? Scazzaro. He says, it's not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. For some reason, however, the vast majority of Christians today live as if the two concepts have no intersection. Our standards of what it means to be spiritual totally bypass many glaring inconsistencies. We have learned to accept that. You can function as a church board member or pastor and be unteachable, insecure, and defensive. You can memorize entire books of the New Testament and still be unaware of your depression and anger, even displacing it on other people. You can fast and pray a half day a week for years as a spiritual discipline and constantly be critical of others justifying it as discernment. You can pray for deliverance from the demonic realm when in reality you're simply avoiding conflict, repeating an unhealthy pattern of behavior traced back to the home in which you grew up. We'll look at that specifically more next week. So that's what it looks like or what it can look like, some some tangible examples. But I want to look now at the scriptures and try to get together some sort of Biblical theology of the heart, or self-introspection, a brief one. We'll begin with the fall of man. First, we have to start at the beginning, don't we? When man first decided to listen to the deceiver, to Satan, instead of trusting God, what relationships were broken? What were the things that became fractured in the fall? We always think of, right, first our relationship with God. Of course, our relationship with others. What about our relationship with ourselves? I think that we overlook that one. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is actually the first thing that Adam and Eve recognize after they eat the fruit. Something's wrong with me. We often forget that the relationship we have with ourselves was broken in the fall. Those knee-jerk reactions you have to certain things that your spouse says or that your kid does, or that bad habit you just can't seem to kick, or that emotion you can't control, all point to a brokenness in how we understand ourselves. What about David? King David in the heart in the Psalms. Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 19, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David is keenly aware of his own emotions, and he lays them before God continually. He expresses a vast array of feelings and desires, grief, joy, sadness, hope, love, beauty. He's unafraid to call a spade a spade, and when he cries out to God, and he gives God the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. He pleads with the Lord, not only to find him worthy of being in his presence, 
But David also asked God to search his heart. Why? To reveal to him those parts of himself that, yes, are pleasing to God, but also those parts that need to be brought into the light, to be understood or redeemed and made new. And we'll spend a little bit more time on this one. Let's look at Peter. I love Peter. Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Never a good idea. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think Peter is one of the most clear examples of someone in the scriptures who is extremely self-unaware and detached from his own emotions. Consider how passionate and sure Peter was with what he said to Jesus. He was so stinking confident. You are the Christ. That's right, Jesus says. And the Son of Man came to suffer and die. And Peter says, nah-uh. May it never be, Lord. Jesus rebukes Peter's rebuke of Jesus. We literally went from Jesus saying, Peter, you're going to be a big part of building my church, to Peter making a fool of himself when, he says, when Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. I think we love Peter because we can so easily see ourselves in him. Let's look at another part of Peter's story. Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not, will, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then skipping down to that final denial of Jesus in 60 and 62, Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. I don't know this Jesus. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the Lord saying, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now what's going on here in this last scene of the story? What's the purpose of this particular part of the story being recorded? Is it simply so that God can remind us of his ability to predict things? Is that what's going on here? If that were the case, why include the last couple of lines about Jesus locking eyes with Peter and Peter weeping bitterly? I think there's a lot more going on than that, but at a minimum, we see a man in Peter who was so totally sure of himself. I will not leave you, Jesus. I will go with you to prison. I'll die with you. He was so utterly positive that he would never leave Jesus' side, and he fails, and it wrecks him. See, Peter thought he knew himself. He thought he understood himself. And when that rooster crows and his eyes meet Jesus's, he wakes up and he's forced to come to grips with the reality that not only does he not know himself, but he betrayed his master. And of course, we're supposed to recognize that pain that Peter feels because of his betrayal of Jesus, but we're also supposed to recognize the clear implication of why it happened. Why did he betray Jesus? 
He thought he knew himself. He thought he understood himself, and he believed deep down in his bones that he would never leave or forsake Jesus. On some level, he was unaware and emotionally disconnected from what was lying deep beneath the surface. And he not only betrays Jesus, he betrays himself. One more scene with Peter. John 21. Jesus has resurrected and is eating breakfast with his disciples. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Why all these questions? Why the same question over and over again? Why is Jesus pressing Peter like this? Certainly in asking Peter if he loves him three times, Jesus is alluding to the three denials that Peter made. But it also seems that Jesus is asking because he knows Peter is prone towards self-deception. Jesus is not comfortable with a surface-level response from Peter of, you know I love you, Lord. No, Jesus is inviting Peter to truly search himself, to understand himself so that he can really confidently abide in him. On the nature of self-deception, Dallas Willard writes, Self-deception is a major part of what defeats spiritual formation in Christ. In self-deception, the individual or the group refuses to acknowledge factors in their life of which they are dimly conscious or even know to be the case, but are unprepared to deal with, to openly admit and to take steps to change. As a result, those factors continue to govern their actions and shape their thoughts and emotions. The further result is that what they say they believe, intend, and want is not borne out in life. The vehement affirmations of Peter and the other disciples that they would not desert Christ are peculiarly vivid illustrations of how that works. So, not that one. We're still learning. Why does this matter? Why does it matter so much that we take this part of discipleship seriously? The reason we're inviting you to join us in growing in self-awareness and emotional health is because true discipleship means allowing Jesus to transform every part of you so that the end result is that we better love God and love others. Spiritual health and vitality is what leads to forming real Christ-like character. It's amazing how many people pursue leadership positions who've never truly begun the journey of self-introspection. Some think that they have, but often what we do is identify a bad behavior, we suppress it by trying to white-knuckle our way through it and be different, changing our behavior, but we're still emotionally disconnected because we've never mined the depths of our own hearts to ask those why questions. One last big quote. Promise. It's really good, though. Stay with me. Spiritual formation of, for the Christian basically refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. In the degree to which spiritual formation in Christ is successful, the outer life of the individual becomes a natural expression or outflow of the character and teachings of Jesus. Christian spiritual formation is focused entirely on Jesus. Its goal is an obedience or conformity to Christ that arises out of an inner transformation accomplished through purposive interaction with the grace of God in Christ. Obedience is an essential outcome of Christian spiritual formation. External manifestation of Christ-likeness 
is not, however, the focus of the process. And when it is made the main focus, the process will certainly be defeated, falling into deadening legalisms and pointless parochialism. That is what has happened so often in the past. And this fact is a major barrier to wholeheartedly embracing Christian spiritual formation in the present. We know now that peculiar modes of dress or behavior and organization just are not the main point. Until these last couple of years, I was a, I was a self-proclaimed, self-aware person. And you should always be aware of those people. Allow me to share one more story with you. We're getting close to the end. In the first few months of me joining the elder team, I had several of the guys tell me in different ways, Zellers, I love your passion, but sometimes the way that you communicate can come across so strongly that I think we end up missing the point that you're making, which is usually a good point, but because of your tone, we don't hear it. I heard that from more than one guy on the team. Notice that what they're saying to me isn't a clear mandate from Scripture that I'm violating. It's not something that they could say, you're disobeying chapter 2 of the book of communications. (laughs) Now, here are some ways that I could have responded to that feedback or encouragement or critique. And they may or may not have happened, so... I could have told the team that they need to toughen up. While my tone is strong, we need to take what we're doing seriously. And you need to acknowledge that your style of communication may just be different than mine. And we've got to learn to work together, i.e., you need to change. Notice that by me asking them to toughen up, I'm actually asking them to repress or suppress the things that they're feeling. Now, it may be true that the other guys need to grow thicker skins. It may be true that they need to think about the way that they communicate and receive input and dialogue. It may be true that we need to take seriously what we're doing, and maybe I'm bringing a level of seriousness that's good for the team, but despite all of that, have I actually heard them, and have I really considered what they're saying? Or have I quickly justified my actions and asked them to change? I've got six other good, godly men who I respect and admire sharing the same thing. Is this the best I can do? Here's another way I could respond. I could have quietly listened and agreed that I need to be more strategic with my communication and gentle in my tone. I could have thought to myself, okay, I guess they can't handle my passion, so I'll just have to dumb it down a bit. I could have moved forward fighting to suppress that passion in future meetings by biting my tongue and gritting my teeth. I could have just tried to behave differently. But notice, by making myself change without going deeper into the why underneath the behavior, I'm now repressing what I'm feeling. Now, if I had done that, would my behavior have changed? Sure. Would that be a good thing? Yes. If that's all I did, would I have actually listened to their concerns? No, I don't think I would have. Why? Their concern is not purely about my behavior. It's about something deeper. Again, I've got six other godly men who I respect and admire. Am I really hearing them or am I just going to believe that they just can't handle how I communicate? So I'll just dumb it down for them. Noticed I haven't even acknowledged that I could be wrong in this response, just that my behavior needs to change. In either of those responses, whether I push back against their concern or I simply just grit my teeth and modify my behavior, have I asked myself the why question? Not once. I could make the argument that both of those responses are perfectly reasonable and that I'm not violating my conscience 
by asking the group to also change their way of receiving my communication or by gritting my teeth and white-knuckling it. Both of those responses, though, would be emotionally unhealthy. Why? Because in neither of those responses do I ask myself, why do I feel the need to speak so strongly? Why do I feel threatened by the team's request to be more careful in my tone? Why is my gut reaction to demand that they change instead of you? You know what happens when we honestly start to ask those kinds of questions? We begin listening to what the Holy Spirit is trying to show us. And remember, you could consider it listening to the Holy Spirit when I take that second response of just gritting my teeth and white-knuckling my behavior. But that is a small piece of what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ. Behavior is just one part. Behavior modification is not the primary wind, my friends. Do we want our apprenticeship to Jesus to lead to changes in our behavior? A million times, yes. But that change in behavior comes out of a deep heart-level transformation where we ask ourselves the hard and painful questions of why, and then we listen. We listen to what God shows us, and if you ask him why, he'll show you. Do you want to know what I think God wanted to show me? I'm going to tell you either way. When I asked myself why I felt threatened by the team's feedback, I began to recognize that I was afraid of something. I was, and I'm still processing this because this is an ongoing dialogue with God, I was afraid that if I don't communicate strongly enough, people won't agree with me. They won't listen, and if they don't agree and they don't listen, then I'm not in control. Even worse, it might mean that they're trying to control me. Now, I could stop there, and while that might be more self-introspection than I normally do, it wouldn't be understanding where my need to be in control comes from. Why do I think I need to be in control? I'll be honest with you. I'm not totally sure I figured it out yet. I think some of it is connected to my wounds from my childhood. Some of it's temperament. Some of it I'm still asking God to show me. But here's, here's what I can do with that, okay? When I recognize there's a control thing going on, I can sit alone with God and ask the Holy Spirit to heal my need for control or to heal the need to fight against others trying to control me. As soon as I start doing that, I am listening to God and I'm seeking him to transform what lies deep beneath the surface. And I spend time with God. Just like some of the awareness came from other people, we can expect that the Holy Spirit can and will use other people to bring healing when we begin asking those questions. I can invite others into my life, that part of my life, and ask them to help me see when I'm grasping for control or when I'm fighting against being control, controlled unnecessarily. And then as that happens, the hope or the goal is that my recognition of these control issues and my repentance time grows shorter and shorter until eventually I recognize it before it even begins to manifest itself in behavior. That's how we're transformed at the deepest levels. We listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling us through those in our community. We seek God's face to understand what's happening, where it comes from, and then we invite other people to walk with us in the freedom of Christ as we become more aware, as we repent, as we grow as he restores and transforms us. Now, I, am I saying that we should do this level of self-introspection with every area or detail of our life? No. But when a spouse or a friend or a home community or, in this case, an elder team or the Holy Spirit reveals something to you about yourself, whether good or bad, we ought to listen. We ought to do our very best to suspend judgment until we've at least had the time to sit alone with Jesus. And by alone, I mean alone. And ask him, why can't I stop doing that thing? Why do I feel so defensive and hurt when someone talks to me about my kids? Or why don't I feel anything when someone talks to me about my kids? Why do I constantly feel anxious why must I feel the need to be in control right now? 
What am I afraid of? What are you trying to show me, Jesus? Holy Spirit, what are you revealing to me? It took the courage of the other elders to be honest with me and a willingness for them to hurt me that led me to this self-introspection that I needed. Reminds me of Proverbs 26. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Perfuse are the kisses of an enemy. The risk that my friends took in sharing that encouragement with me, it doesn't just affect my relationship with them. It actually affects how I communicate with a lot of different people. That's why this matters, because you cannot give to others what you yourself don't have. That's why we have to take this seriously. Christians are interested in understanding themselves so that Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can change us down deep, well past the surface of behavior. And until we take this part of growing spiritually seriously, we will have little to offer our community, our neighbors, our co-workers. This is kingdom work, my friends. And it begins with each one of us, and it allows us to experience the love of Christ on the deepest level so that we can be the presence of Christ to those outside these walls. Do you want to see Central Bible reach the lost and transform our city? If your answer is yes, then we want to invite you to join us on this journey. In closing, I think for many of us, the feelings of fear or intimidation about asking the why questions are because we don't believe that Jesus really wants all of us. We struggle to trust in his deep deep love and full-blown acceptance of us. So in order to go on this journey, we have to fully embrace this reality. It is this. In Christ, I am far more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. And at the very same time, I am far more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. We've got to hold on to both parts of that statement equally. If we forget our brokenness, we'll find no need to grow in self-awareness and emotional health. What is there to fix? I know myself. I've got it figured out. If we forget the deep love and acceptance of Jesus, we'll never find the, the courage to try. We aren't human doers. We are human beings. We don't simply flip a switch and change like robots. We are complex, whole persons. In Christ, we have been given the freedom to resist the desires of the flesh that lead to hurting ourselves and others and begin to live into the new life of Jesus. But that does not mean that we now have this freedom to flip some switch that we couldn't turn on before. It's just not that simple. Christ has freed us, not so that we can escape the darkness of our hearts, but so that we can enter those dark places in our soul and bring restoration and healing. God is always interested in using those wicked and evil and broken things for good. He's a God who loves to restore and to renew, doesn't he? Our new identity in Christ is now our security as we enter those deep places of hurt and pain that we weren't interested in understanding before. We simply avoided those areas, and the reality is that many of us in Christ continue to ignore those areas, thinking that the offer of putting off the old man and putting on the new simply means behavior modification. But I want to contend with you that Jesus wants something far deeper and more satisfying for us. Our security in Christ does not halt our introspection, just the opposite. It bolsters our freedom to look more deeply into our hearts than ever before because we have nothing to lose and everything to gain in him. The truth will only set us free. The freedom that Jesus offers us helps us wade into those dark, scary, and ugly parts of our past we all know that cavernous ache in the pit of our hearts. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants to actually redeem and restore those broken parts of our being and you cannot do that unless you're willing to examine yourself looking past the surface well into the depths. And I promise you, if you do it, Jesus will be there to meet you. I love you guys. Pray with me. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.